Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, welcome to the Stuka Sim podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. And I'm Michael McMullen. I never know when when the recording starts. I listened back uh, to last week's and there was a lot of big gap. Um, but anyway, here we are again. Mm. Uh, we, uh, people have been saying, you know, have a good break. We're not on a break. We're carrying on. Um, we're carrying on. And last, I mean, we must, we must be lucky charms because last week when we recorded, it was the day they announced the Turkish Masters. Mm. And today they've announced that the British Open is returning to the calendar after 17 years, which is, mm. uh, which is good news. A, a lot of people will have fond memories of that tournament. Yeah, I mean, I thought for a while this was going to happen because there have been so many new events in the last few years and a lot of them have been in Britain. It just seemed a bit of an anomaly that the title British Open, which is a title that oozes prestige, and as you say, a lot of people have good memories of it in the past, that that wasn't coming back onto the calendar. So I wasn't greatly surprised. I was very pleased when I heard that it would be coming back on. And as you say, 2004 was the last time it was played. But prior to that, it had been part of the calendar every season since it was first played in 1985. I think I'm right in saying it was the first snooker tournament ever to have a £50,000 first prize. And for a number of years, I think it was second only to the World Championship in terms of the first prize on offer. And it may, remained a prestigious event uh, when it moved around different venues. Uh, but it'll always be associated, I think, primarily with Derby Assembly Rooms. A few people have said, well, maybe that's where it could end up going back to. But as far as I know, the assembly rooms aren't there anymore. I think they burnt down, actually. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, they're, they're not open anyway. Yeah, I mean, it was a massive event in the 80s. It was uh, it was the flagship ITV event. It was always in the lead up to the World Championship. So it was a very important part of the season. Um, Selena Francisco beat Kirk Stevens in the first final in 1985. Got huge ratings. It, mm. was, it was one of those that finished on a Sunday afternoon. There was no live football that, that season on, on British television. It was right at the height of the boom and, uh, you know, some great finals there. But also, I think it's it's kind of became associated with supplying players with not only their maiden ranking title, but I think there's five players. It's their only ranking title. Um, so let's see. Silvino Francisco. Yeah, Tony Mio. Bob Chaperon. And Nigel, Fer- Nigel, Nigel Bond. Bond. And, of course, Fergal O'Brien. Yeah, there it is. There we go. Didn't take long, did it? He, yeah. Uh, he, he was responsible for one of the uh, the greatest British Open stories. And it, and, uh, it was so typical of him. He won it in April 1999. The following season, it was moved to the early part of the season, and he was not happy at all about the fact that he had waited so long to win a ranking title and only got to hold it for about five months. Then, when he got there, he won a match at night and was told he had to play again the next morning. And when he lost, he was absolutely furious. He felt as defending champion, he deserved to be treated a bit better than that. And I think a lot of it was the underlying uh, anger, really, of only getting to hold the title for such a short period of time. Definitely. There's been some great matches there, some great finals. Mm. Two, two stand out for me, Nigel Bond and John Higgins. Wonderful. Um, it's on YouTube, this is. The atmosphere is in Plymouth, I think. The atmosphere is fantastic. Uh, Nigel Bond needed a snooker in the deciding frame. He got it. He won on the black. Fantastic final. And the other one, probably Stephen Hendry's last real great Harari when he beat Ronnie O'Sullivan in the final, 2003. Um, his queue had been broken not too long before. Yeah. That, so so yeah. people thought... 
people thought maybe he'll be all right with a new cube. But he did win the odd event after that, but that was his last big win, really, against a big player. Um, by then, the tournament, I mean, it, it started on ITV, went on to Sky. The last stage in 2004 was on Eurosport. But um, this, I've said this before, and this I know people will think this is my campaign against the Triple Crown talking, but it's just a fact, OK? 1986, it's on YouTube. Dickie Davis comes on and he says... And bear in mind, this is like February, February, March time. He says, welcome to the start of our coverage of the biggest tournament of the season so far. And that year, the top prize in the British Open was £55,000. The top prize in the Masters was 45000 The top prize in the UK Championship was 24000 The British Open was second only to the World Championship. Fact. Yeah. And what a legend he was, by the way, Dickie oh. Davies. Yeah. And he's still going, you know, he's still going. He's nearly 90 now, but he's still knocking around. Well, what I've we need, a... what we need is we need mm. Dickie Davis and the Dulux yeah. dog. Duck. That's what we need. Definitely. <laughs> definitely. I, I love this, by the way. A few weeks ago, Judd Trump did that interview about how there's too much harking back to the past. So what have we had since then? We've had a three part series on the BBC <laughs> doing nothing but harking back to the past. The British Open has returned, and the two of us are sitting here talking about Dickie Davies and Duke the well, Duke stuff. Fantastic. Well the, well, the next thing I've got written on my notes is Barry Took, because you may remember last, <laughs> may remember oh, yes. last, last week I made a rather rambling reference to Barry Took, and I realised afterwards but most people probably have no idea what I'm talking about. Barry Took, he was a comedy writer, and he ended up presenting a programme called Points of View, which, is, as you pointed out, was basically old people writing in with their gripes about basically what the BBC were doing. It was usually something like, you know, I was disgusted that Howard's Way started 15 minutes late this week because you were showing live golf or something like that. Well, so, well what, what, funny you should mention that because one of my memories of it is a, a young child writing in and complaining that a match between Tottenham and Arsenal had gone to extra time. And as a result, and I'm quoting what he wrote in the letter, he hadn't <laughs> got to see the Muppets. <laughs> Fantastic. Anyway, I erroneously, you know, we're a journal of record, if nothing else. I erroneously yeah. credited Barry Talk with writing a line in a, in a carry-on film. This is getting even worse. Uh, if you don't know what carry-on films are, they were a series of comedy films in the, in the 60s and 70s in, the, in Britain, very popular. And it turned out, I looked it up afterwards because I thought, mm. I think I've got this wrong. And I, I was wrong. It was actually, he, his, part, his writing partner was Dennis Norden, who, who, was, who also presented a very well-known old TV show called It'll Be All Right on the Night. And it seems he actually wrote the, the line in for me, in for me, it's all got it in for me. So, um, yeah. so anyway, that's all the relevant, well, but I wanted to correct well, it. Yeah, you've made your apology now. I, I, I would be tempted to say don't go on any boating trips underneath bridges where angry Dennis Norden fans are standing mm -hmm. with a huge plastic cow. But then again, having to call Cliff Thorburn would probably be a good thing for this podcast. <laughs> Judd would certainly enjoy it. Another reference to an old yeah. sitcom. Mm -hmm. Um We've had now the, the the chap who wrote in last week with the you remember he was recording the episodes that Fergal O'Brien was was mentioned in has not written back so maybe maybe, <laughs> maybe he just got fed up of it. He's, I wouldn't he's blame, too I wouldn't, much. Yeah, I wouldn't blame him. A um, couple of things before with th this episode, by the way, it's not just us rambling about old stuff. Um, well, not all of it. Well, um, well, it will be eventually. Yeah, we've got we, we had a lot of emails built up as I, as I said last week. Promised last week we we're going to go through them. We'll get to that shortly couple of things first. I think you've seen a couple of the Gods of Snooker yeah, episodes yeah. now. Have you got anything to say about it? It is wonderful. It's really, really good. But I mean, I love the way with all these programs, you get these stories that get told. that It just never happened. There's no way Alex Higgins was fined £2,000 for wearing a green suit. I mean, it was the 1970s. People were wearing all kinds of weird stuff. And also at that time, that was more than you would have got for winning the World Championship. I mean, to have been fined more than the actual first prize for the tournament itself, you would have had to do something like, I don't know, shot the tournament director or something like that. <laughs> so 
but yeah, I mean, look, it is wonderful. And, and I was thinking when I heard there was going to be this series, it's like, what is there left to say? What new stuff is there to learn? Actually, it turns out not a lot, but you can find new ways of saying things. And some of the footage they have is wonderful. That stuff that you mentioned um, with um, Steve and David Vine, um, sort of off air, just chatting away before the interview started, stuff like that is uh, is absolutely f fantastic. So uh, it's been very enjoyable. As I said, I don't have access to the iPlayer, so I've only seen two of the episodes. And uh, I thought the story of Steve was told very, very well, actually. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, it is just a fantastic series. And um, it's clearly th th something that a huge amount of time and effort has gone into to get it right and to make it as good as possible. So, yeah, big thumbs up from me for uh, for that program. Yeah, it's very well made. Uh, I think we mm. agree on that. Um, I just wanted to mention one other thing. Uh, Will Snooker Tour put their shots of the season compilation uh, together. They were going to do the top 50 shots, but I think they, they decided that it would go on for about half an hour if they did that. So in the end, it was an A to Z. So it's 26 shots, some, some terrific shots in there. But I noticed watching it, they are literally all pots. Every one of them is a pot. And not a single safety shot, not a single uh, late snooker, escape from a snooker. Listen, always with these things, it's people will say, oh, you've left this out, you've left that out. I just thought it was a little bit of a shame in a way. And I think the reason for it is because it's aimed at a social media audience, they felt sort of flashy pots. There's a lot of long reds in there and a lot of kind of flashy shots that are not necessarily crunch shots, if you know what I mean. I mean, the Murphys, Murphys two blacks, one in the Masters, one in the World Championship, they were obviously crunch pots. But there's quite a few sort of first reds of frames that are actually really shot to nothings. I just thought it was a bit of a shame there was no sort of safety in there because there's not a single person who won a tournament this season who didn't at some point win a frame with a telling safety. I mean, look at John Higgins at the Players' Championship. You mean you could have you could have had ten shots from 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 that performance. All of these things, of course, have their roots in the old days of the BBC having shot at the Championship and ITV doing the hot shots, which of course they've brought back now in a different form. And the ITV ones actually had a bit more credibility because, well, I think BBC only did it for the World Championship anyway, but they put together the list of nominations before the second round was even completed. Whereas with ITV, they would actually have it for the whole tournament. You had to send a postcard. You had to send a postcard in after a Yeah, week. well, exactly. Where would you even and, get a postcard and, now? And then David Vine would read your full address out. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. As you said, if that happened now, it would probably lead to some sort of Facebook-related house party <laughs> going, going on in your house. But the, the reason I mention all that is because, and he'll, I know he'll deny this ever happened, right? Because it's so ironic. There is one person I remember winning one of those. It would have been the hot shot with a safety shot, and it was Stephen Hendry. Can oh, you believe it? Yeah, he, he would deny that ever happened. He claims he never played a safety shot. But that definitely happened. It might have been in the British Open that he won in 88. You see, it's all, it's all come full circle. Mm. Listen, it was as I've said before, about people who do TV, cutting that shot of the season, cutting that together would have taken days to do. So all credit to, uh, I know who did it. We uh, I won't go into that. But um, yeah, it was a good job. I just thought it was a shame that... Um, I just thought it was a bit of a shame there wasn't more sort of more of the other side of the game because it, you know people like to watch that stuff anyway. That is that Judd Trump's uh, sort of green. I think he sort of decided was the was the best shot. And maybe I mean listen, he was eight, eighty odd up in the frame at the time. It was an amazing shot. Um, context I think should should play a part. One shot that should have been in there, and I did I did point this out to. Um, Let's let's call him Sam for the sake of arguments. Because <laughs> that's his name. No, just plucking plucking a name out of the air. I did say yeah. that Ronnie, and this is one thing we forgot to do last week, or I forgot to do when we were doing our of the season awards break mm. of the season. We never we never actually did. Oh, yeah. But but Ronnie O'Sullivan um, against Barry Hawkins in the Tour Championship. 
he was nine six down, and he pulled pulled out a brilliant clearance, and he played a great shot from the black from the penultimate red in and out of bulk to land on the last red on the side cushion. Um, now he's nine six down in a best of nineteen semi final. You know that's a it was a great shot, wasn't in there. But anyway, as I say, that's, that's like we were saying, wasn't it last week that he just does that? He plays these outrageous shots, but just seems to see them and get down and play them, whereas other players would hesitate and think, is that a bit too ambitious? If Ronnie thought thinks a shot is a bit too ambitious, it probably encourages him. Even also, more to play it. and that's another example of it, I suppose. Yeah. Also, the Mark Williams red off the black, which was frame ball against John Higgins at the Crucible. Oh yeah. yeah, that wasn't in there either. I mean, I just thought it was an incredible shot. Well, who'd, have, who'd have thought of that shot? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we can forgive Sam though. I mean, he's got he's got his own problems with relegation uh, recently for Sheffield well, United. Well, so. Well, no, as I say, that's a name I've plucked out the air. I'm not saying it's a real person. or I don't know what football team he supports either, although you've just said I just told right. you. Yeah. yeah, OK. Right. Anyway, he doesn't listen. So anyway, uh, so let's get on with the emails. Uh, we start with a huge, huge one from Tony Finnegan here. OK, huge subject. He said, watching the various nostalgic snooker documentaries on TV recently made me wonder about the famous snooker theme, Drag Racer, by the Doug Wood mm. Band. This is the BBC uh, theme. Unfortunately, it's been remixed and rehashed by the BBC over the years, almost beyond recognition. What about playing this iconic theme tune at the start of each podcast? It would certainly complement it and get us listeners in the snooker mood while doing air guitar wherever we may be listening. This, of course, depends on royalty payments and copyrights that may exist on the music. It'd be great to hear it again, though, if possible. What are your thoughts on this iconic instrumental tune well i mean iconic is an overused word but i think it applies to this tony uh it's a you know obviously we all grew up or many of us grew up that was the, you know you hear that you think right it's an evening or it's an afternoon morning whatever of snooker on the bbc um you're right they have messed around with it i don't know why it'll be some some pen pusher in an office somewhere who's decided we've got to sort of you know sex it up or whatever i mean what's the point it's if you're going to do that just pick a new theme tune don't don't, don't mm. mess around with the one you've got in terms of getting it on the podcast, the two things, one, you identify yourself, which we may have to pay them money. Second is you're assuming I know how to put music on at the start. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, listen, how can you not like it? And here's, a, here's a fact about Drag Racer, OK? I know what you're going to say because I was going to say it. Go on. Is this to do with the Welsh musician? Yeah, James yeah. Dean Bradfield from the Manic mm. Street Preachers. That's how he learned to play the guitar. It's the first thing he learned to play was Drag Racer on the guitar. Yeah, I met James Dean Bradfield actually about 15 huge, years ago. Huge. Yeah. In fact, I, I basically had a sort of a private uh, session uh, of music <laughs> with him because, I mean, the, the Manistry Preachers be, you know, just one of my very favourite bands. Yeah. And um, James was actually a regular visitor to, uh, to the radio station I used to work in. And the producer of the show that he was appearing on, a very good mate of mine, said to me that, uh, listen, James Dean Bradfield is coming in to record a live session. Do you want to come and sit in the studio and listen to it? Well, and, you, well, nah. and you said, nah, not, I'm, uh, yeah, there's uh, Terry and June's on. Sorry, I, don't, yeah. I can't. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's the episode where they play snooker. <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, I, I met him then afterwards and I had a chat to him. And just uh, such a nice bloke. And we were talking about football and everything. It was really good. And uh, then, of course, I had to get a picture taken with him. And then it's funny, having smiled and laughed and joked all the way through, being a rock star, when he's having his picture taken with me, he has to put on this scowl on his face. Yeah. So it looks like he's uh, he's reluctant to uh, to be in the picture. I still have that uh, that photo somewhere along the way. But uh, yeah, that's 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 the old story that he um that was how he learned to to play the guitar. I, I think if it was still the same theme tune now, we'd probably take it for granted a bit. Whereas now, on the occasional times that we do hear it, um. You know, it, it brings back, you know, great memories of that time. So if it was still around, we'd probably just, 
you know, take it for granted. So in a, in a sense, maybe it's a good thing that it's changed. So we have it to look back on. They did that with Match of the Day as well in the 1980s. They sort of did a dance remix of the tune. And this was going to be the new Match of the Day theme. I think it lasted about two weeks. It was such an outcry. They took it off again. But yeah, wonderful piece of, of music that just stirs so many memories in in, uh, in people when they hear it. Yeah, and I sp- you know things move on. I suppose you know, as James D- Dean Bradfield may say, everything must go. Anyway, a little uh, a yeah, little... it doesn't really work. It so. doesn't work at all. Let's move on to Mike McQuillan. Uh, just wanted to drop you a line to say how much I've enjoyed the podcast. Keep up the great work. Very entertaining. Thank you, Mike. He said your correspondent who wrote stating he'd binged on the first fourteen episodes made me smile. I started listening from episode one hundred and twenty, just after the twenty twenty World Championship. I spent the last past couple of weeks decorating my living room very quickly ran out of things to listen to. <laughs> no problem. I just downloaded the first 119 episodes of the Snoop Scene <laughs> podcast. I've listened to all of them in nine days. You've taken me through prep and painting to successful conclusion, so thank you for your support. I'm just sorry that I'm from boring old Cheshire, Ch- Cheshire and not one of the interesting places like Turkey, Hungary or the USA. Very nice part of the world, Cheshire. Uh, that's me saying that, by the way. Uh, I said a particular highlight was one of the two podcasts Dave did on his own. Oh, they were the dark days. <laughs> Just me talking to myself. You did two on your own? Yeah, yeah. He said where he talked about Michael Holt and the meaning of success. Very interesting. And I especially like the hushed tones Dave used when talking alone, reminding me of Ted Lowe. I didn't want to wake the neighbours up. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, he said, the podcast is a great listen. I suspect, like most people, I enjoy it most when the niche areas are discussed. We'll be enjoying this one, then. Uh, I hope the various musical references make a comeback in the near future. Anyway, it's not all praise for us. He's just he got some suggestions. He said, a couple of suggestions for topics you haven't covered so far. Firstly, I haven't watched Gods of Snooker yet. That's for this weekend when I settle down in the new living room. But what about a review of other snooker documentaries, much like the book reviews you did during the first lockdown? Climbs the story of snooker is a particularly good effort. There are other things like Alex Higgins' documentary on the BBC repeated last week. On a related subject, there's a brilliant documentary on YouTube from Granada TV dated 1978, just as the game was growing. David Taylor features heavily. I also believe Granada made a documentary in the early 70s called Hurricane Higgins, though I've never been able to find it. I'm certain some of the footage from the aforementioned BBC Higgins doc came from Granada programme. I'm no fan of Higgins, but it'd be fascinating to see how things were in snooker around that time. Quite possibly the worst snooker-related footage I've ever seen came in the form of snooker superstars, which I picked up in Borders years ago for the princely sum of £2. It was a waste of £2. My abiding memory of it is Dennis Taylor walking around a golf course telling the most boring anecdotes to present to doing a level best to look interested. Oh, yeah, I've seen this, yeah. It was clearly a matchroom product of the late 80s, and thank goodness I didn't pick up Volume 2, which featured, no doubt, riveting interviews with Neil Folds, Tony Mio and Terry Griffiths, one to be missed. And yet the Amazon reviews are overwhelmingly positive. I've got a couple of these. They're all right, actually, to be fair. They're not, it's, the, it's the old matchroom stuff. He says, my other suggestion, which certainly fits the niche criteria, is ventures into other media by snooker players. I recall some footage of Joe Johnson singing Everlasting Love. And, of course, who could forget Peter Ebden's shot at pop stardom with I'm a Clown? There are also YouTube videos of Ebden singing other hits. That's in inverted commas. Although I can honestly say I haven't watched them. Anyway, as I say, keep up the great work. Listening to the podcast is a highlight of my week and a five-star review as we left on Apple Podcasts. Well, that's very kind of you, Mike, and that will help other people find the podcast. On the music thing, Peter Ebden, he had two two uh, singles, I'm a Clown, and uh, then a, 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 which was not a novelty record, but it was kind of, that was how it was sort of sold. And then a much more serious, some would say pompous effort called The Fall of Paradise, which proved to be prophetic because he never released another record after that. I Am A Clown uh, was picked as the worst song of the year on the ITV chart show. That's right, it was. Think, yeah. yeah, back in 1996. In terms of documentaries, I mean, there have been loads of them over the years, particularly in the 80s. 
Uh, Paddy Brown, who was a sort of middle-ranking Irish professional, part of the Republic of Ireland team that beat England in the World Team Cup, that would have been one of his main claims to fame. But he did play at the Crucible, I think, as well. And I think it was Granada Television just made a documentary about him and the life of a journeyman snooker pro at that time. There was one called An Ordinary Joe, which was shown mm. on the Thursday night, two days before Joe Johnson started his defence of the world title. And there was definitely a documentary about Dennis Taylor. Uh, now, that may only have been BBC Northern Ireland. I have all of these, actually, on DVD. Well, the, the one somewhere. also, they did one on Hendry, didn't they? Behind the scenes. Oh, yeah. yeah when yeah. He, won the, he won the Grand Prix in 87. Doing the business. The doing the business, doing, doing yeah. Doing the business, yeah. And, uh, yeah, um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're kind of, they'll all be out there somewhere on YouTube. Um, the one that he mentions there, Mike, from uh, 1978, it's very interesting because it is just before the boom. And mm. you see John Virgo, actually, a young John Virgo's on it, David Taylor, as he says, sort of talking about their hopes for the game. You know, obviously yeah. couldn't, couldn't quite believe what would happen in the next, uh, in the next few years. Anyway, uh, we, we'll move on because we've got quite a few to get through. John Bennett, he said, what a brilliant season of snooker. Well done to all involved. And the controversial subject of wild card tour cards for Jimmy White, Stephen Hendry, Ryan Evans, etc. I'm in agreement with the idea there must be some sort of criteria involved and not just a pick and choose process. I would also take it a stage further. For example, let's say anyone who's been a top 32 player or ranking tournament winner is entitled to a wild card if they so wish. These players should play an extra qualifying round to earn their place in the main tour, proper stage of the tournament, maybe like the first round of the world qualifiers. This would mean they are in a way earning the right to be in the main event and create some interesting pre-qualifying matches with previously high-profile players playing each other for the right to be in the tournament proper. Pretty much like back in the day when players who'd retained their membership of the WPSA were allowed to play pre-qualifiers for the World Championship. That was a strange round, that was. You'd have sort of Les Dodd, you know, Tony Knowles, these sort of people who would play... Very stark. Yeah. yeah. A very eerie round, which sort of just kind of was really very anonymous. Um... I suppose the thing is, the problem with having another round to qualify, it just creates, you know, more time you've got to find to, to play these matches. Um, also, you know, it, we, we've seen most tournaments that don't have the full take up of players and for various reasons, some, some to do with travel. Um, so anyway, that's, but that's John's opinion on that. And fair, fair enough. I, I think we, we're in agreement. There should be a more rigid criteria rather than just, you know, I take, I take a card out of my pocket every couple of years to give to you. I think we've sort of agreed on that. Mm, yeah, we have. I mean, you, you look at um, golf, which has on both the PGA Tour and the European Tour and some of the lesser tours as well. They have various categories. So if you've won one of the very biggest events that gets you onto the tour guaranteed for five years, you're in the top category. If you win a lesser tournament, it gets you on for a shorter period of time, obviously. Um, but they also have a thing, the career money list. And if you're in, say, the top 30 or 40 of that, the rules change from time to time. But interestingly, I think in some instances, it's a one-time only deal. So if you're in the top 40 of the career money list, you get a one-year exemption. But if you're still in the top 40 of the money list, I don't know about the exact figures, but this is roughly how it works. After that, then that's it. You don't get another go at it. So maybe there should be a bit more structure brought to it than than there is at the moment, that it does seem to be a bit ad hoc. But, But then when you do that, it throws up a few anomalies as well. Some people get the invitational cards who maybe shouldn't and vice versa as well so you can see both sides of that argument okay liam from manchester he said this is an issue i've been thinking about a lot recently michael made a good point a few weeks ago on the podcast i don't remember this yeah, uh, but by, by, by claiming there are seven, six to eight players who when they play well are capable of winning any tournament snooker seems to be one of the most difficult sports to consistently perform at your best which is why i think we spend so much time discussing a player's b game this begs the question, what do we really mean by an A game? 
And how long do you have to perform at that level to consider it as such, i.e. a frame, a session, a match, a tournament, a season? Recently, I watched a conversation between Stephen Hendry and Steve Davis, where Stephen asked Steve, OK, then, this is the big question. At their best, who wins, Ronnie or Judd? To which Steve replied without hesitation, oh, Ronnie at his best always wins. I tend to agree that Ronnie has the best A game of all time, but can't really put my finger on why. Would be interested to hear your thoughts. Thanks for all you do with the podcast. It's a great source of snooker education and entertainment. Thank you, Liam. Well, as you seem to be responsible for this, uh, what are your thoughts? Mm. Well, what's the question, really? Well, what is an A? What is an A game? How do we? Yeah, and, I know. How long? How long do you have to sustain? I mean, I think if we look at John Higgins at the Players Championship, he yeah. played. He played his A game all all week there, all the way through, all four matches. He never dipped below a certain level, which was an unbelievably high level. So I suppose that was his A game. Um, Neil Robertson, then, as we discussed yeah. last week, didn't we in the Tour Championship final? That's his A game. But I remember talking to Ronnie about this. It would be almost twenty years ago now, because. He he was doing some publicity. Um, he used to have this big press launch for the Irish Masters. Now, he was defending champion. He was also world champion. So he flew into Dublin for the day, and I did a TV interview with him. And I always remember this sentence he said. He said to me, basically, it's about how good your worst is. So he thinks that's actually more important. Now, obviously, Ronnie sees the game differently to everyone else because of the genius that he has for it. But, I mean, you see, expressions like this, A game, you know, he... You've kind of hit the nail on the head there. I mean, what does that mean? Does that, you know, any player's A game, one of the top players is, you know, just basically winning, a, say, a best of nine with five big breaks. But then, you know, if you don't then produce it in the next round, well, have you brought your A game to that tournament? So it's a bit of a bit of a kind of a vague concept. I don't know, incidentally, if that is right, that Ronnie's A game beats Judd's A game all the time. I mean... Judd is capable of hitting extraordinary heights. And I mean, his all round game now is, is so much better than it's ever been before. I heard him described recently as arguably the best tactical player in the game. Now, that's incredible that we're saying that about him. And for so long, we said that that was what his game was lacking. But it didn't seem like an outrageous thing to say. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, you can't prove, you know, whose who's game is better. You know, the fact is Trump doesn't fear playing O'Sullivan. Um and I think now has a winning record over him, just about. Um, you know, pretty much wiped the floor with him in that Masters final. Um, mm. So, but it's just a, that's an argument, you know, you can have. And Steve's got his views, and everyone else will have their views. Um, yeah, I think you know, I think you know someone's A game when you see it, don't you? Um, and uh, and you also recognise when it's not there, and then what levels do they have? And I think I noticed this actually in a particular match at the World Championship, Mark Selby against Mark Allen. I mean, Selby was playing to a very high level, but it was clear that he had other layers he could go to, where Mark Allen, it seemed to me, just did not. He had to play his best to win that match, and he and he couldn't produce the form mm. over the three sessions. And obviously, we know Selby went on to uh, to win the tournament. Now then, Will Hurd, this is... Uh, I think you can file this under political hot potato. Um, oh, right. This is a very good email, actually, um, which he sent a few weeks ago, but we just got round to it. He said, I've been enjoying your podcast recently as someone who grew up watching snooker on the TV in the 80s. It's been an excellent lockdown listen. I have a snooker-related point I'd like to make, and I'd be interested in your, in your views. I think it was wrong of Barry Heard to make a deal with Saudi Arabia to put on the Saudi Arabian Masters snooker event, given everything we know about that country's human rights record, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, and their use of sports washing. Their human rights record was described... By Grant Liberty, by Grant, Lib Grant Liberty's Lucy Ray in the Guardian, as a record of brutality, torture, and murder. I read Hearn's statements on the deal, and I think he was extremely expedient 
In the recent tributes to him following his retirement, I didn't hear anything from journalists about this regrettable decision being a black mark on an otherwise successful management career. I'm not so naive to think big business cares necessarily about morality. However, my question is, given the stance some national football teams have taken recently against human rights in Qatar in the lead-up to the World Cup qualifying games, do you envisage any similar pushback from players on the issue of human rights in Saudi Arabia or perhaps the possibility that journalists or people outside snooker focusing on the issue could generate pressure on world snooker in the coming months to disrail the, the event or make it uncomfortable for players considering participating? He says this is unlikely, I admit. I might be completely wrong, but looking from the outside, it seems that the relationship snooker journalists have with those in charge of the game is somewhat cosy. Would it be fair to say the game in general doesn't want to deal with this thorny issue? I make the point because, in my view, the shocking murder of Jamal Khashoggi was a line in the sand in relation to how we should view Saudi Arabia. Can anyone really go and play there or play snooker there for big bucks without a heavy heart? Sport does not exist in a vacuum. I also think it's wrong to say it's simply a matter of individual choice by the players, whether they want to participate in the event rather than questioning the whole idea of staging the event at all. Well, I think there's two points here. One, obviously, is the Saudi Arabia tournament. And the other is the issue of journalists being cosy. We'll come to that one later, but we'll uh, look at the, the, the main uh, point that you raise here. I actually watched recently the, the documentary called The Dissident, which is about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And for those who don't know, he, he for a long time had worked sort of with the Saudi state. He then became a critic of theirs. And he, started, he moved away, started writing for The Washington Post, was very critical of human rights and other aspects of, of the country. He ended up uh, in Turkey. He went to the Saudi consul in Turkey because he wanted to get married. He wanted to get a marriage certificate. And he was told to come back a couple of days later to sign the paperwork. And he went into the consul, never came out again. He was murdered in the consul. And in the documentary, the Turkish authorities explained that in their investigation, people came over from Saudi Arabia, you know, with the express intention to kill him. Horrible, horrible story. Disgusting story. And I recommend the documentary because it's very um, forensic in the way it goes through it. But I think in terms of, OK, how does this relate to sport? I think there's two easy positions to take. One is to say, OK, we should not go to a country like this to play sport. Absolutely not. And the other is to say sport and politics should not mix. And therefore, the two are not related. So they're the two positions you can take. I think the, the answer personally lies somewhere in the middle. And I think, you know, you have to in part be led by government. You know, it's not like um, in the 80s where there was a ban on a government ban on sports going to South Africa, for example, during apartheid. Our government, the British government, this is, sell billions of pounds worth of arms to Saudi Arabia. So that's their attitude to the country. They trade with them openly. Uh, now, the last Labour manifesto said it would put a stop to this. The public overwhelmingly didn't vote Labour, rejected it. There's no pressure at all on sport from the authorities not to go there. Amnesty International have spoken out. They said they don't necessarily advocate boycotts, but they won't sports people to educate themselves about about what's happening, read their reports and just read up on it in general. But you could argue, I think, that Barry Hearn was doing his job. His job is to provide earning opportunities for players. This deal came along. He's working in, in other spheres, boxing in particular. I think the Fury-Joshua fight, if it happens, is supposed mm. to happen in August in Saudi Arabia. Other sports have gone there. Golf's gone there. Formula One, I think, has gone there. Football has Saudi money involved as well. So he signed this deal to provide you know, opportunities, big earning opportunities for players, half a million, I think the first prize, you know, was, was slated as. Some people definitely argue over the morality of going there. You could make a similar argument against China. You know, their human rights record isn't exactly stellar. Um, so, and there's another point as well, you know, if you're going to boycott the boycott Saudi Arabia, does that extend to players from Saudi Arabia? For example, if one, if one had the chance to turn professional, 
should they not be allowed to? What about Hussein Vafai from Iran? You know, we don't have the best diplomatic relationship with that country. Listen, it's a matter of personal opinion, personal choice. Players have that choice. But I think you're right, Will's right when he says they're in a difficult position. They can't really turn the tournament down because the money's so big. The rankings, obviously, implications are so big. The tournament exists and not playing in it would definitely damage damage them. Um, so it becomes a story, to answer another point, if a top player speaks out about it. If, if one of the top players comes forward and said, I don't think we should be going there or I won't be going there, then that is a legitimate story. That's not happened yet. One thing I will say, this tournament has completely disappeared from the calendar. Yeah. I, was, I was never, I've got to be honest, I was never 100% sure it would ever actually be ever, would ever actually happen um now it may come back on but you know the calendar as it stands right now it's not on so we'll see we'll see if this event happens or not i fully understand the uh the um feelings that will put forward there but i suppose the question is why is why is it snooker's got to make a stand when our government doesn't and no other sport seems to yeah, and it's so selective as well. I mean, as you alluded to there, there are so many countries. I mean, once you get into this, if you decide, right, we're going to boycott this country because of human rights issues, there are very few countries in the world that you can't have significant criticism about, actually, in terms of human rights. So it, it can be very selective in that way. And it seems that Saudi Arabia has been focused on. I think a lot of that has been because of the big Gulf event that's happened there in the last few years. That was what prompted the, the talk. But, you know, you, you could point to some of the human rights abuses under the Trump administration uh, that was in power at that time. And nobody was suggesting people boycott American tournaments. I don't think the players will think twice about it. Um, I don't think many of them would be particularly interested in the political side of it. I don't think that they would be aware of a lot of it. And even if it was pointed out to them, they, it might not have much impact on them so rightly or wrongly i don't think the players will think twice about going and as you said amnesty international aren't even calling for players to boycott it all they said was they want players to be better informed about the issues going on and as for it disappearing off the calendar you're absolutely right because it was due to take place uh sometime in the autumn of last year now obviously everything changed then i think that's the only reason it hasn't returned to the calendar though i think the covid situation there is still pretty bad um, and I think the feeling is certainly in a recent interview that Jason Ferguson did, he said if it doesn't happen next season, he's pretty certain it will still happen the season after that. And I don't see why it wouldn't, because there's a 10 year deal there. Certainly World Snooker will still want to go. And I don't or haven't heard anything from uh, the Saudi side to suggest that, that they want to pull out of it. So I expect it will happen at some stage and I expect every player will enter it. Well, we'll see. I, I just I just had the feeling when it was announced, it, it sort of smacked a little bit of too good to be true. Now, I'm not saying they would put a, a press release out that they knew wasn't correct, but I, I don't know. Until it happens, I'm not sure it will happen. We'll mm. see. And clearly mm. some people, will included, don't want it to happen. But on his other point, he says about our, our journalists too cosy. I mean, this is int- this interested me because um, I, you're speaking, I've been you know on the circuit now nearly 25 years. I mean, it's getting on for that long. And I've been banned from tournaments in the past, okay? So particularly when I worked for 110 Sport and there was that whole civil war going on. There were a couple of tournaments that wouldn't let me in. Um, I think, look, listen, the snooker circuit is quite small. That's certainly true. So everyone kind of gets to know everybody. Whether that's cosy, I don't know. The truth is journalism is all about building relationships. I think some people on the outside... They sort of have a view of journalism that's shaped a little bit by films and TV, mm. where it's always some maverick who you know, doesn't follow the rules, you know, and but gets the story anyway. The truth is more boring. Okay, it's all about hard work and nurturing sources. You look at 
Watergate, okay, Woodward and Bernstein, the great journalists. Now, how did they break that story? Basically through sheer dogged hard work, but also contacting sources that they cultivated over many years. Mark Felt, FBI director, who was deep throat, Bob Woodward had a, a, a relationship with him already, so he could go to him, and that's how the story got out. And, you know, that's how it works. You know, we went to Ivan Hershevich is, is the head of media, an absolute legend of snooker. He's been there about 20 years himself. I, I don't think anyone in the game has more integrity than Ivan. You know, he's a great guy. We're good friends of his. We went to his wedding, mm. okay? But that doesn't mean that, you know, we're going to cover up stories or we're going to... I mean, in terms of the Saudi story, it was reported at the time the tournament was on. No player came forward to condemn it, so no journalist wrote that it had been condemned, you know? Um, so uh, is that being cosy or is that just cultivating sources? When I was press officer briefly for the WPBSA, one of their rather abrasive uh, board, board members had a go at me in Aberdeen, it was, mm. <laughs> because I was drinking with the press. I was yeah, drinking were, with the press. You, know, you were the, accused of being too friendly with the press. You, yeah. you, were, the, you were in charge of press relations. Exactly. <laughs> there are things, I'd say this, there are things that I have not reported when it comes to private behaviour of players, particularly overseas when they're sort of let off the leash a little bit. And that's because I consider it private and none of my business and no one else's business. Now, if I was a news reporter for The Sun, it would be a different story. But you, when you're relying on a sport basically for your living, you know, you, you can't afford to get involved in that side of it. But, I mean, last just last week on this podcast, I said two things about World Snooker Tour. One was praising them for the way they've run the circuit in the last year, and the other was having a go at them for not promoting that tour championship properly. Um, I don't think I don't think anyone can really say, look at Clive. I mean, you know, I don't think anyone would say he was too cosy with the authorities over the years. Far from it. But when you've campaigned, certainly as long as he has, for changing snooker and for basically what we've got now, pretty much, it's a little bit churlish then to start picking away and picking away at stuff. Clive has campaigned for basically 40 years, 50 years even, for the for the way snooker is now being run. Um, and so, you know, he's got what he wanted. So, um, but what are you, are we too cosy? What do you think? No, I mean, things are good in the game now. So there isn't a great deal for people to be criticising the establishment about. But as you point out, when things weren't being run well, I mean, the media were anything but cosy and you know, we're all over the association's case at that time and highlighting it. So I think you reflect what's going on at the time. And there's no reason not to be cosy at the moment. I mean, if you're at a tournament, you spend a lot of time with people. Why would you not want to be friendly with them? Especially when they're probably quite similar personality and interests. Yeah. And obviously they're they're into snooker as well. And, you know, you mentioned Ivan there. We've known Ivan for 20 years. I was chatting to him on the phone today. We were having a laugh about a few things. And you know, at the end of the day, I mean, you know, it is just sport. It's, you know, we're not, we're not exactly talking here about being cosy with a, you know, a, a corrupt government or anything like that. I just like to think that Woodward and Bernstein do a weekly podcast and that on this week's episode, they're praising Hendon and McMullen for their uh, groundbreaking work. <laughs> seems unlikely. It seems very unlikely um, <laughs> for a lot, for a lot of reasons. Yeah, I think that's the point. You know, you build up relationships and there's a certain trust. So, for example, if they say, look, we're announcing this story tomorrow, but it's embargoed until 10 in the morning, you respect that because that's the rule. They're the rules of the game, much more than you, people on the Internet do who just do what they like. You know, there's a certain code and it it cuts both ways, you know. But, there, you know, I mean, Hector Nunns, for example, he he writes for a lot of the tabloid newspapers. He respects those those um, uh, sort of, uh, what's the word? Um, boundaries? Boundaries, yeah. yeah. But he'll also write stories. He wrote a story um, at the Crucible about the fact that uh, Mark Allen asked for Riyad Evans to be removed from the practice room when he was practicing because he was doing the, the BBC. And, you know, he, he, he 
made the point that it was Will, Will Snooker's um, responsibility for that and didn't didn't pull any punches in the story. And and I can assure you, Ivan would respect that because he understands. He was a journalist himself. He understands the job that we have to do. I think it's a I think it's a friendly relationship, and I think it should be. I don't think it's cosy personally, but you know, other people may may, may have other ideas about that. Can I interject there? Mm. What happens if Mark Allen gets drawn against Rihanna Evans in a tournament next season? Can you imagine the coverage there'll be surrounding that? Well, it would be unprecedented, wouldn't it? Because, I mean, obviously they were partners and they had a child together and there's certain issues around the sort of maintenance uh, for, for the daughter. But it would be unprecedented in any sport, that, I think, that, that mm. story. Uh, and, and it could happen. And that's why I think in some ways the fact that Mark spoke out and it, about the wildcard situation and then that happened at the Crucible... It's almost like the, he's sort of fanning the flames before there are any flames in a way, but it does happen. It almost becomes a bigger story. I mean, that would be incredible. And there's so many matches now and leagues and championship league and so on, all the ranking events, you know, it, it could happen, definitely. I mean, actually, if you look at the uh, the UK championship, the way that's seeded, if you're in the sort of top eight, you play one of the... Rianne will be one of the bottom seeds in that because she's a mm. wild card. Mark will be one of the top seeds. So it's not impossible that could happen there. But anyway, I mean, that would be that would be something. Mm. Uh, anyway, let's let's move on yeah. because the two emails on a similar theme here. Um, Matt Shirley writes, I wonder what your take was on the issue of concessions. I understand that players need to have the opportunity to get Stukas to win the frame. And sometimes this aspect of the game can be exciting. But over recent years, I feel certain players take this too far and it can slow down the game. Some recent examples. In the World Championship semi-final, Corin Wilson needed three Stukas to tie the frame with just pink and black left. How realistic is it that he's going to achieve that? There was... Also, a World Championship match where Selby required five snookers to win the frame. Again, I feel that a lot of it was gamesmanship and nothing to do with and nothing and doing nothing to promote the game for me. I heard Jack Nazask and Stephen Hendry talk about this recently. They suggested some extra rules might be needed on it, perhaps limiting the amount of snookers you can play for, or perhaps a time limit after which you concede the frame if you can't get what you require. Be interested in your thoughts. Thanks as ever for the podcast. And Barry Hemmett, similar situation, similar subject. He said, I've been thinking about the comebacks in frames after watching snooker over the weekend. This was during the World Championship when he sent the email. He said, I remember seeing many players snatch a frame from the clutches of defeat. John Higgins seems to be one player that stands out coming back from a deficit of, say, 65 behind and winning with a 67 break. However, with regards to Selby in the semi-final, is there any time a player has come back from needing snookers and 70-plus down to snatch a frame? I can't recall any. I'm a Selby fan and hopes he goes on to win. Spoiler alert, Barry, he did. Uh, he said, I do, however, I do see he doesn't help himself when he tries to win a frame from an almost impossible situation being five snookers behind. Could there be a rule agreed by the players that once you're over three snookers needed, you have to concede? What are your thoughts on this? My thoughts on this, I'll be honest with you, OK? I've commentated on many matches where you, they, a player needs three or four snookers and you think, please don't come back to the table. Please, because you know it's going to be 10 minutes of futility, OK? You're right, most times they don't get them. They might get one, but it just seems to be extending the frame for no reason. However... I think you have to look at the position in the frame. There is a difference between, say, needing three snookers with pink and black on to needing three snookers with one red on, because with one red on, of course, the free ball comes into play. And in effect, there's only one snooker. And actually, I was looking this afternoon on YouTube, just randomly came across MJT Snooker, who's a great sort legend. of uh, a great legend on YouTube. He put up some extraordinary, just broken bits of the 1990 World Championship. And one of them was a frame between Willie Thorne and Neil Folds. Okay. Now, Neil in the frame. He's 51 up with 35 on, so the last red's on. So Willie needs effectively four snookers to tie at that point. He, get, he immediately lays a snooker. Neil tries this swerve. He hits the pink so, and leaves a free ball. So not only is he giving away six, so now the difference is 45, the free ball means actually Willie effectively now only needs one snooker. He pots red and blue, so he's now 39 behind 
with 35 on. He gets another four-point snooker, clears up for the respot. Neil actually wins the frame on the respot. But the point is, what looked like a lost cause was suddenly turned into very nearly winning the frame. So I think if you're playing on for lots of snookers on the colours, or certainly the later colours, that is futile, I agree. But with reds on, there is the chance with the free ball, and then, you know, suddenly that deficit gets eaten up. And also, it's got to be said as well, I mean, the game is called snooker. I mentioned the shots of the season earlier. There were no safeties in there. You know, it, it is all skill. I remember the, the, the Northern Ireland Open final, the first one, marking Barry Hawkins. I think it was the penultimate frame. The black was over the pocket, just pink and black on. And Mark King spent about 15 minutes trying to get the pink on top of the black. Obviously, a very intricate, delicate shot. And you, you're watching that and you're thinking, this is just get on with it. This is not going to happen. Eventually, it did happen. He played a brilliant shot to get the pink on the black. Barry Hawkins knocked the black in. I think it went to a respot. I think Hawkins won the frame. But the point is, you know, he very nearly won mark the title, actually, um, which he did obviously win in the decider. So it's a thorny one. I'm a little bit reluctant to advocate banning playing on for snookers because it is, it's very much part of the game, isn't it? You talk about commentary there. There is no agony in the world of journalism than being up against deadline, trying to get your story into a newspaper, and someone decides when you've got three minutes to your deadline to just keep playing on in the last frame and you can't get your quotes and all the rest of it. So we've all been there. I wouldn't be massively opposed to something being brought in because you cite some examples there, but they are very, 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 very rare. I mean, think about it. How often in the course of a season does someone win a frame after needing even two snookers? It's extremely rare that it happens. And I wouldn't be massively opposed. Put it this way. If there was an announcement that a rule was going to be brought in that you can only play on for one snooker and no more than that, I don't think that would be particularly outrageous. Because I, I do think at times it just it can be very tedious to watch to you know the more casual snooker viewer. And I don't think it would be the worst. It's not something that I'm saying I massively advocate. Um, but I don't think it would be the worst idea. There was... There was a thing, I think, back in the 1970s, it may only have been for one tournament, when a rule was announced that you couldn't concede before the brown. <laughs> I mean, think about that, you know, and this was in the 70s, you know. So, I mean, imagine how long things must have gone on. I think after a few days, or maybe even from the first day, the players just eventually ignored it and decided to... Um, to just go ahead and concede wherever they wanted. But I don't well, think there will be a change of the rules, but I, I wouldn't be massively opposed to it, I have to say. Well, on balance, I disagree, but I also reserve the right to get annoyed, as I will do, I can guarantee, when the new season starts, when you start seeing it. I think definitely Selby, and it was that last frame, wasn't it, against Bingham on the... on the um, Was it against Bingham on the... the, 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 the it would have been the Friday evening. It'd already been a very oh, long, yeah, I think very long was, session. Yeah. I did think that was just... Come on, as Neil said in the studio, everyone wants to everyone wants to go to bed. It was like half eleven at night. It just that did seem unnecessary because I'm not sure he was convinced he would actually get them. I think he was sort of just saying it's almost like planting a seed in Stuart's head. To, you know, this is what you're going to get tomorrow, sort of thing. It's a, it could be tough for you. Um, but I, I, the only thing I would say is when you start, if you start sort of changing the rules a little bit, sometimes there are things that you haven't thought of that then sort of almost yes, yeah, on you. So I'm minded to keep it as it is, but you know, I'm not totally against it anyway let's crack on because we've got a couple more to do ricky moss long-term listener to this fantastic podcast from the not so successful snooker city of southampton just a quick one whilst watching the world championship this year about the three miss rule one thing i've never realized before i understand the rule where if you can hit a red full ball and you miss three times you lose the frame 
But what about when you're on a colour? So, for example, if you can clearly hit the black ball full, but a player decides to nominate a different colour instead, let's say, for example, the green. To my knowledge, if he misses the green three times, he wouldn't be warned by the referee. But how is this different to being a red? Hopefully he can clear this up. Well, Ricky, no, the rule applies um, for all balls. So it would apply if, in that example, if you hit the green twice before you played the third shot, you'd be warned that if you didn't hit the nominated colour, whatever that was, um, you would lose the frame. So if you could see the black full and you, you still went for the green and you missed the green, then the frame will be awarded to your opponent. Um, still happens. I'm always surprised when it happens. There are some situations where... It just seemed. I mean, the world qualifying actually Hugel, um, he he lost a frame on that, and it was an extraordinary frame because he couldn't have lost the frame in any other way. It was in absolute lockdown. The black was over the pocket, reds round it, and he played the same shot again. The table seemed to roll off, but he, he should have made sure. Really, I think he knows that. Um, but yeah, the rule is the same for reds and colours. That, that that's basically that's basically it. Mm. Yeah. Um, I'm trying move- to think. Actually, you just mentioned the not so successful Southampton. I can't think of. Can you think of any player? That's ever been from there. I think they might have had a few Premier League nights there, but I can't think of a single player who's ever come from there. Um, no. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> Alpha, okay. bon- Alpha Bonzi, regular correspondent, he's got some very direct questions right. off the back, the back of the World Championship. Is a fourth world title for Selby, one in the eye for O'Sullivan, who now has to accept Selby as one of the all-time greats? Oh, yeah. Because he said that he have to win it four times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he said, well... Will Neil Robertson have to accept he's destined to be a one-time world champion? Will Karen Wilson have to accept he may never conquer the mountain? And don't Will Snook have more important things to do than try and get the Mark Williams break-off band? Well, very quickly, Alpha, on the first point, listen, I think Ronnie actually has a, a real grudging respect for Mark Selby. Um, he may not like the way he plays. Obviously, he doesn't like the fact he beat him in that world final. Why would he? But I think, I think there's definitely a kind of admiration there. It might be grudging, but I think there's an admiration. Neil Robertson... He won't accept he's destined to be a one-time world champion as long as he's still playing. He's got every right to think he can win it again. I think we've discussed many times, I think that it just seems to be the same thing every year there for him. It just seems to be a particular style of match that doesn't suit him and he doesn't play to his strengths. He's A-game that we mentioned earlier. Kyron, I'm, I'm sure he's not going to accept he's never going to conquer the tournament. I think he's got great belief, Kyron. I, I think he believed he was going to win it this year, actually, and that's why he was so disappointed afterwards. And to be fair to Will Snooker, they didn't try and ban the, the Mark Williams break-off. I mean, Mark kind of put this about himself because that's what he's like. But the WPBSA, which is the, the players' body, they wrote basically a, a consultation email to the players bringing up this, this issue. Do you have any thoughts on it? I was sat with the player, this is true, OK, at the Championship League, who was complaining like hell about the fact that they, the players are never consulted on playing issues. They should, they should ask us about it. How, what do they know? They're all pen pushers, all this stuff. And then the email came through from the WPSA, this email about the Mark Willis break-off, and he immediately deleted it. He said, that's absolute nonsense. I'm not answering that. Well, hang on. <laughs> Do you want to be consulted or not? They're consulting you. You can tell them you think it's a load of rubbish. I, I agree with you, but they're consulting you. Okay? You've just been complaining you're not being consulted. Yeah. The thing about it is, if you, um, if you did, I don't think there was ever any real prospect of it being banned. But if it was, as Mark pointed out himself, you know, you open a whole can of worms there because, OK, well, then by that reasoning, do you outlaw rolling up behind a ball colour to lay a snooker? Oh. I mean, all, all sorts of shots would have to come into it then. I mean, it, it would just seem bizarre to isolate that shot. Clive's view on this is he said, why, why, is the, why does the first shot of the frame... Why is the first shot of the frame the only time you're not allowed to play safe, basically? Um, mm. Because it's an ultra-safe break-off. He, he's completely against banning it, so... 
maybe that should be the final word on it. Uh, Christine Clements, is it just me that finds the title of the new BBC show not quite right? I thought the expression gods of snooker was a way to fortune involved in the game. The advert seems to indicate or Alex Higgins of those gods. When did this expression start? I don't really remember it hearing it five years ago. Well, I think the snooker gods is, is what you're thinking of there, Christine, um, which is a kind of this mythical bunch who, who you know, the, old, the balls don't forgive you and all that. So if you miss an easy part, the snooker gods will conspire against you. That's, you'll have bad luck at, at, later in the frame, even though it's nonsense. And we addressed this a few weeks ago because someone wrote in pointing out it's nonsense. In a player's mind, it's festering, definitely. Uh, players definitely think this. So that's, yeah, the gods of snooker is just a, a way of, I suppose, uh, describing the, the big personalities of the 1980s, which the series is about. Uh, Nick Smith, he said, I'm watching Ronnie play Anthony McGill. This is um, obviously in the World Championship. And John Virgo has just said, these cloths are so quick for about the millionth time. I was wondering who decides what cloth is used, what do they base their decision on, and do the players have any say in the matter? Well, the cloth is uh, Strawn, um, who are you know the leading cloth makers. Um, they make it to their own specifications. They're the experts. Um, they try obviously choose from the roll of cloth the best, most reactive cloth uh, they can find. No, the players, as far as I know, don't have any say. And of course, if they did get any say, they'd delete the emails as we already, mm-hmm. <laughs> already yeah, established. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, they're experts. Those guys. I mean, they've been doing it for centuries down in down in Stroud, isn't it? Down that area. Um, it's a very uh, specialised thing, actually, that not that many people are, are very good at. One thing you would have to say, if you remember, about fifteen years ago. There was such a spate of complaints and justified complaints about playing conditions and tables. I remember John Higgins after one match, and he'd won the match, incidentally, sitting in a press conference, shaking his head, saying, I don't know how many times we have to say it to them. They've got to do something about this. But it's very rare now. You don't hear many people complain about the conditions and the tables nowadays. So somebody's doing something right. Yeah, I think the cloth in particular, you know, they, they I mean, that is tested and that's a specialist area. And those guys know what they're doing. You know, sometimes you get issues with the cushions or whatever, but the actual cloth, I think, uh, you know, that's uh, that's that's great. Um, Nick, uh, that was Nick Smith. Paul Rogers, great show. I've been a snooker fan since I was a child growing up in the 80s. And listening to your podcast really compliments my enjoyment of the game. This quick one, maybe more for Michael. I live in Dublin, and a few people have asked me this today, actually, the same question because the British Open was announced. They've asked about the Irish Masters. He says, I live in Dublin. I wonder why there are no events here in the Republic of Ireland anymore. Invitational, as the Irish Masters was, or a proper ranking event. There's massive interest here. Uh, what say you from the Republic of Ireland? Yeah, I mean, the, the last big thing would have been the uh, the PTC finals. And they were played in Dublin in 2011. Really good crowds, actually, even though it wasn't the greatest of fields because a lot of the top players hadn't qualified. Then it moved to Galway, which I think you went to at least one of the years um, yeah. along the way. Oh, lovely, lovely place. Yeah, so 2013, I think, was the uh, the last time it was there. And then well, the following year, it moved to Preston, that event. And it's never been back. Massive interest in the Republic of Ireland. I think if you put an event on, particularly if you had a good field and you put it in the right place, you would get really, really good crowds. I'd be pretty certain about that as long as it was promoted properly, which nowadays I think it would be. The problem is who shows it, who pays for it. That's the thing. I mean, you know, it's a very small country, Ireland, and... To, to get sort of big, big companies to sponsor it to, to big, uh, you know, to, to the level that you need. Well, I mean, we had that with Benson and Hedges uh, because look, tobacco, it was it was a different era back then. I mean, they would just throw money at things. It's hard to see now who would come in and put that sort of sponsorship in. But then again, these tournaments are shown around the world. So, you know, perhaps a more global sponsor could do it. So I think it would be a, a massive success. 
Um, but just for whatever reason, it hasn't happened. RTE, I know, showed the Orange Masters for many years. It wasn't their decision to stop. It was just the tournament itself stopped. And then once it had been gone for a while and there were some moves made to try and get it back on, I think their attitude was that they didn't want to pay anything for it at all. In fact, they didn't even want to pay the production costs. And RTE are really, really strapped for cash at the moment. So I have to say, wouldn't be greatly optimistic about it happening anytime soon. The good news, of course, we do have a big tournament on the island every year. So, and Belfast really isn't that far away, particularly if you're in Dublin. It's only a couple of hours away. But it would be great to have an event in Dublin. And uh, wouldn't it be wonderful to go back to Goffs? Maybe you could finally pay that, uh, that five pounds that you refused to pay 20 years ago to, uh, for, the, uh, for the driver's pool, Dave. <laughs> yes, well, you know, let it go, I think is the, is the answer to that. Uh, I'm gonna, we've got one more to do. What I will say is, after the World Championship, I quite a few emails about various commentators, some positive, some negative, um, <clears throat> including Trump and Lazowski. I, I don't particularly want to get into all that because that, I do that role as well, you know, and I'll probably be working with some of these people. I don't think it would be appropriate for me to, co- to comment on, you know, what I think of the other commentators. I don't think that would be appropriate at all, but obviously everyone's entitled to their own views on it. The, the, the feedback, I was surprised about Trump and Lazowski. was actually quite negative. I mean, I, I, I thought they'd gone down quite well. That was my... My perception, maybe it's just, I mean, I'd say, you know, I'm talking about four, four emails about it. It's not, it's not the whole country. But um, anyway, um, as I say, I don't particularly want to get into that. But I will get into this final one from Martin Boyd. He said, I'm loving the World Championship as always. Controversial thought on the semi-finals. We did discuss about whether they're too long. He says four, four days are way too long. Well, actually, three days, aren't they? Um, mm. He said, keep the, two ta- keep the two-table format for the semi-finals. Play at one and seven on both tables on Thursday and Friday to complete it. Saturday becomes a rest day, so the finalists, commentators, fans, team put on the event, a fresh of the two-day final, Sunday and Monday as usual. Well, I think we've done to death about the, the length of the semis. I think we want to keep them as they are. Some people think they'll be shortened. One thing I'm totally against is a rest day, okay? I think a rest day in a, in a sporting event really just kills the momentum. And also, you know, all this thing about being fresher, they're not actually supposed to be fresh. The, 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 one of the challenges of the World Championship is the stamina required. And the other thing, and this is quite a boring reason, but it's actually the overriding reason why there will never be a rest day. So many people who work on the event, including all the people on the broadcast side, are freelancers, okay? They get paid a daily rate. So if there was another day of the tournament, which there would be the rest day, you'd have to pay them an extra day, and that would run into, I promise you, tens of thousands of pounds that obviously the broadcasters and the media sort of organisations don't want to pay. So I, do, I would not support a rest day. I like the fact that, you know, you have that big high on the Saturday night at the end of the semis and then you're straight into the final. And personally, I would like to keep that. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not a fan of cliches. In fact, I normally avoid cliches like the plague. But <laughs> if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Simple as that. And the slow burning drama of the semifinals that we've had the last couple of years would be diminished a bit were it not for the fact that it was played over three days and you have a chance for such a story to build. And I actually quite like the fact that you have that big high on the Wednesday of the four quarterfinals all finishing. It's very often the best day of the whole championship. And then there's a little bit of a lull the next day. It's just that bit quieter. Plus, you don't want the semifinals to be going on on separate tables because when it gets to that stage, you want to see every ball of every match. And obviously you couldn't do that if they were both going on at the same time. So no change for me. Okay, well, that is that is it. Our hour is up. Um, 
Yes, I've got, sorry, I've got to read out this. Uh, we, we are members of the Sports Social Network, very proudly. They have lots of other podcasts that you can listen to. It seems to be growing all the time, actually. I was looking at it the other day. So whatever sport you're into, there will be, I'm sure, a podcast for you there. Someone did complain, actually, last week, because we now have an advert at the start, that it was a gambling advert, a betting advert. I have to say, we have no say over what the advert is. I don't know what it is till I hear it. Um, but at the same time, I'd be, a, I'd be a bit of a hypocrite to say we can't have betting adverts. Bearing in mind, I've just spent 27 days commentating on the Betfred World Championship. Um, I understand not everyone thinks the amount of betting advertising is appropriate, but you know the fact is most of the Stuka Tour is sponsored by bookies. So I, I think, I guess, I don't know if there's an algorithm that puts the, the adverts together with the podcast, but it would seem quite an obvious um, area, I suppose, for this one. Anyway, uh, you, if you have anything to say about anything we've said or anything you'd like to say as we move you know, into a quiet period, so this could be a good time to get the emails in, uh, you can email us at snookerscenepodcast at mail.com, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, my takeaway from this podcast is your meeting with James Dean Bradfield. That seems to yeah. be the highlight for me. Yeah, well, yeah. We, uh, actually, there was another day, Nicky Wire, the songwriter from the Manics, <laughs> they, they were back in another time, and um, Wales were playing a match live on television. It was somewhere in Eastern Europe, so it was on during the afternoon, and there was they had a bit of a break in whatever they were recording. He came and sat at my desk, I had to watch the match. I happened to not be there that day, which was probably just as well. Might have been uh, just a little off-putting. By the way, John Higgins is 46 today. So happy birthday to him. Well, it's it's interesting because he was the last winner of the British Open. Um, yeah. And oh, Bob, so will he be number one seed? Well, that's, that's one question. point. But also Bob Chapron, it's also his birthday today. Um, ah. So British Open, obviously looming large. I mean, I think Higgins should be the number one seed. Why not? Well, it seems a bit bizarre to be seeded number one on the basis of a tournament that you won 17 years ago. I mean, that I tell you, that's it's funny that that's never come up, right? You consider how much niche stuff we talk about. We've never talked about that curious thing that only exists in snooker, that the defending champion is the number one seed. Yeah. I mean, I think that probably goes back to when there only was one tournament a year, uh, the World Championship, and it just seems to have, have stuck ever since. So, uh, And then, of course, the World Champion, as far as I know, is automatically seeded number two if not the defending champion so you can be runaway world number one and only be seeded third it's a it's a very curious thing but yeah it'll be interesting to see what happens with john higgins that you know you can't rely on precedent either because you can look at times in the past where you can have exactly the same situation arising twice and different approaches being taken to it at different times but it's not exactly one of the one of the hot issues but uh Oh, we'll make it into one. We'll make we will. it into one. We will, we'll, yeah. we'll, make, we'll make it the biggest scandal of 2021 for sure. Well, th- that is it for this week. So, um, yes, thank you for listening. And we will be back next week. For now, goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.